Hello, and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Love. Today, I have the utmost pleasure of speaking with Alison Raskin. Alison is an American writer, director, comedian, and mental health advocate. She is featured weekly on the popular and very funny podcast, Just Between Us, with co-host Gabby Dunn. We are talking today about Allison's book, Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. Allison is open about her struggles with mental health. She was four years old when she was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. We talk about anxiety, dating while living with a mental illness, and how to have hard conversations if you are with someone with a mental illness. Allison brings so much levity and deep wisdom to a topic many of us are not truly educated on. Enjoy. Welcome to the Let's Talk Love podcast, where we flip the script on outdated narratives and cliches about love and relationships. I'm your host, Robin Ducharme, founder of Real Love Ready. This podcast is for anyone who wants to be better at love, regardless of relationship status. We'll talk about the intimate connections in our lives and the challenges and complexities inherent in those partnerships. Through our no-holds-barred interviews with global experts, we'll gain insight about ourselves and learn new skills to improve our relationships. Because when we learn to love better, we make the world a better place. Are you ready for open and honest conversations about love? Let's get started. Well, welcome everybody to today's episode of Let's Talk Love. I am so happy to be joined by our guest, Allison Raskin. Thank you, Allison, for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I, um, I've i been reading your book for a few weeks and listening to you and reading the book, and I just absolutely loved it so, so much. And I've been following you on your uh, podcast and watching you on Instagram. And it's just such a pleasure to have you. Oh, well, <laughs> you've already made my day. So thank you so much. <laughs> so let's dive in and talk, start talking about your book, because it is such an important read. I think everybody um, that wants to learn more about mental health, as well as if you're with somebody that has um, men- a mental illness, I mean, this is a really important book for people that not only if you are struggling with a mental illness, as well as if you're dating somebody, um, or just if you want to learn more. That's what I, I really got so many learnings out of this book. Um, it's called Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, or Depression. And so kudos to you, Allison, for writing this book. And first of all, I did want to ask you about um, you, you do talk about this in your book. You share your story very openly about how you, how you did develop OCD. You were four years old, right? Yeah. So mental health has always been a part of my life. Um, I don't remember a time where I haven't been kind of struggling with my mental health, uh, cause I had something called pandas, which basically means I got strep throat that sort of activated the OCD in my brain. So it came on really strong and really quickly. And my behavior, you know, kind of changed overnight, which I think was pretty scary for me, but also for my parents. Um, But I was really lucky that they took it seriously. They were like, this is not her. This is not okay. And they got me quickly into treatment and on medication. And, um, and so, 
you know, for me, my life has sort of just been navigating how do I become the person that I want to be, even though I also have this disorder? Like, what does that look like? And I think I really struggled for a long time to figure out how to show up in romantic relationships and to how to not have romantic relationships, heartbreak, rejection, all of those things be so damaging to my mental health. Because, you know, it's one thing just on a day-to-day basis to take care of ourselves. But then when we're in these like really highly emotional, highly vulnerable interactions, it can feel like, you know, do or die. Um, And so I wanted to kind of provide a roadmap for how to make all of this just a little easier to navigate and not feel as scary to pursue partnership because even if you've struggled with your mental health, that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue partnership. That doesn't mean you don't deserve partnership. That doesn't mean you're not capable of having a really healthy and fulfilling partnership. And um, I tried to to share both my journey and also some, you know, expert advice to, to help other people get there as well. Yes. And so in the book, you are sharing your personal story. You have interviewed so many different um, experts, like clinical psychologists, sex therapists, dating coaches, um, who, who, just to name a few, right? And, and also couples, like real <laughs> yeah. life couples that were going through the, the same thing that, you know, you've been going through your, your life and sharing their relationship stories. So I just loved the mix and the stories and also the expert advice. So I, I do feel like, like you said, it's $16 for the book, but you're getting like hundreds and hundreds of dollars of therapy as you're reading this book. So <laughs> it's really, it's, it's solid. It's really, really good. I still related. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I yeah. mean, a big problem is that, you know, therapy is not accessible to a lot of people. Yeah. And so I think there's this expectation that we should inherently know how to be healthy in relationships. We should inherently know how to be good partners to each other. But why? <laughs> like the idea that yeah. like two people from completely different backgrounds dealing with completely different baggage and potential trauma, also having different communication styles. And then having mental health issues, like that's going to take a lot of work. That's going to take a lot of like negotiation and, and you need some tools for how to do that instead of just feeling like, oh, well, I'm garbage because I couldn't figure this out on my own right away. Yes, I absolutely agree. And something that I learned, which I didn't know the statistic that one in five people will be diagnosed in their lifetime with a mental illness. Like that is, that is a large number, but the other realization I had while I was reading this. I'm like, you know, when I was reading, um, you know, things about OCD tendencies, I'm like, oh, I totally have so many of those. (laughs) And like talking about anxiety, like I think I live with like low grade, for for a long time, I've lived with low grade anxiety. And this is not uncommon. I know it's not uncommon, right? So it's not, I think there's just so much stigma around mental illness, but I think, you know, I, I don't, would you say that that I'm correct to say that like, I think so many of us have tendencies. It's not like, just like, you've got this and, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Definitely. You know, I think that there's a lot of, of discussion in the mental health community about the, the value of diagnoses, you know, um, mm-hmm. there are going to be people that, that meet the critical, um, clinical criteria for diagnoses as, um, Yes. Expressed in the DSM, which is like basically the Bible for, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists. But there are a lot of people who are living in, you know, subclinical levels where like they might not necessarily, you know, qualify for having an anxiety disorder, 
but anxiety is still an ever-present part of their life. They're still struggling maybe with some OCD tendencies, even if they don't have full-blown OCD. And so really just like an approach that I think is helpful a lot is to focus not on like, do I have this disorder or not? But what symptoms am I dealing with in my life and how can I learn to alleviate them? Yes. So in the book, there's you there's this discussion around the three types of anxiety. So I would like, can you can we go through those? <laughs> because this is like because I, I really love this how like one of the one of the levels of anxiety is like a helpful anxiety, your wisdom, right? Which is different than walking around going like worrying about something incessantly where you're just like you have no control over it. Yeah. So anxiety exists for a reason, you know, like if you talk to any, you know, therapist, they're going to tell you that your anxiety is there to protect you. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we, we needed to have anxiety so that like when we were like the classic example, like if there was a tiger near you, you would leave, (laughs) like, you know, like you have to be, um, it, it, it's meant to signal you when there is danger. Um, but a lot of times the, the wiring gets faulty and it's signaling you when there isn't danger, but your body and mind are responding, are responding as though it there is. And so um, when I was talking to psychologist Robin Gibbs, she sort of was breaking down that, you know, sometimes this anxiety that we feel in our relationships is actually there to is valid, right? It is, it is like a signal that something is off. It is a signal that like, maybe you are not safe in this partnership. Mm. Um, You know, so if like, this person is like, okay, I'm, I'll call you tomorrow and you don't hear from them for a week and you feel a little anxious. That's not really irrational, right? That's no, grounded, definitely right. Yeah. That's grounded in reality. <laughs> and that's a signal that maybe this person isn't the safest choice for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also, you know, two other major kinds that show up and, and one is sort of just like generalized anxiety. So if you're someone who is just tends to be an anxious person in all areas of your life, it is likely that you will also have anxiety in your relationships, right? Like if you're freaking out that the bus isn't going to come, you might also be freaking out that your partner is not going to show up. Yes. Um, They're like, it's just sort of like your MO and how you move through the world. And so it's going to be a part of that aspect of your life as well. And then there are other people who really don't live with generalized anxiety. And for them, their anxiety really only comes out um, when it's when there's intimacy. So like Mm. in relation to another person, because maybe they have like some attachment wounds or maybe they have some things that they haven't worked through. And so there is a fear around getting close to another person. And those are all different types of anxiety. And it is a lot of work to sort of parse through, okay, which one am I feeling? And do I need to actually listen to it? Yeah. And something you say is it is your job to soothe your anxiety. Your partner is simply a secondary helper. (laughs) I liked that. I like that a lot, right? Because we know that we have to do our own work. And if we're bringing our stuff into the relationship, which is inevitable, it is our job, right? Yeah. Unless there's, of course, stuff that your partner's doing. And it's just like, no, I mean, you got to, you got to sort this out, buddy. (laughs) And I think it's also, you know, this expectation that if your partner is right for you, then they will know how to help you. 
But again, that's so unfair. You need to be able to tell your partner how to help you. And then what's telling is not, did they know instinctively what to do in the first place, but were they able to do it once you told them? Yes. I like that. I love that. So you say one of the hardest parts of living with anxiety, OCD, and or depression is figuring out who you really are underneath the bullshit, the illness. Because you, if you've got all of this going on in your head and all your thoughts, it's like you have to parse through, okay, where, where, what, what is truly, what is the reality here, right? So what is your best advice for doing a lot of inner work before entering a relationship versus being in a relationship while figuring yourself out? You know, I think both are, are valid. You know, I think that there is sort of this maybe mindset that you have to be like completely healed to have a, a, you know, healthy and fulfilling relationship. And I don't believe that. I think that a lot of times being in a secure relationship can actually kind of anchor you in a way that allows you to then do the work on yourself and, Mm -hmm. and um, get to the place that you want to be because you're have this person sort of like providing a, a, feeling of safety for you to do that exploration. Um, But I also think that there's different levels to that, right? Like you don't want to enter into a relationship when you're in crisis. Um, And so I think it's really getting to a place where you, where if this relationship does not work out, you know that you will be quote unquote, okay. okay. You know that it will not make you have, feel like you don't want to be alive anymore. You, you won't, completely lose your sense of self. You won't see it as a rejection of your entire value as a human being. Like if you're starting to think about entering into relationship and you're like, well, if this doesn't work out, this means blank. And the blank is really bad. (laughs) Then I think there is more work to be done before it is really safe or, or smart for you to enter into something. But if you've done enough work where you feel secure enough in yourself that if this thing doesn't work out, that you will be okay, that you will survive, that you will continue to live the life that you want. But, you know, you're still dealing with anxiety. You still have depressive episodes. You still have to tackle your OCD. That's okay. That's the kind of stuff that like is, you know, an ongoing kind of forever journey that a lot of times we're able to take while in partnership. Yeah. I love the analogy you give in the book about um, your potential, so this is a quote, your potential partner is an outstretched hand that can help bring you to shore, right? But if you could only reach out and successfully grab, so, but you could only reach out and successfully grab this hand if you're almost, already almost on land. I loved that because if you're floundering at sea and you're like, you know, you're searching for that person, like I need you. And they're like on the shore. You're like, you're definitely way too far away for me to help you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's kind of that 90, 10, you know, like you got to get yourself that 90%. Um, yes. And sometimes, you know, mental health is not linear. So you might no. meet somebody at a stage where you are that, where you are like doing really well. And then you go through a phase a year into the relationship, six months, five years where you have a, a backslide. Um, but just kind of remembering that it is still your responsibility, that this isn't while your partner is there to help you and support you, like you have to be the one that is like, okay, things are not going well. What am I going to do about this? Yes. Instead of like looking to your partner to solve the problem. Yes. 
Beautiful. So in the book, you have, there's, there's a lot of tools for, if you have a mental illness, when do you disclose if you're dating or if you're in a new relationship? So when is the right time to disclose to someone that you're dealing with a mental illness? I really like to talk about the stage of the relationship instead of the timeline of the relationship. Yes. Yes. Because there is such a difference in the ways in which we get to know people. You know, if you're 35, you might be on a first date with someone that lasts five hours and you guys go into really relevant, important parts about your life. And therefore, it wouldn't be abnormal to mention that you struggle with anxiety because you've also learned that they struggled with. So this and their their mother is sick and you know like you're learning real things about each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're just having a casual relationship with somebody, I don't think that you really need to disclose that stuff until you're starting to really get to know them. Um, and the the tricky thing with with this kind of information is you want to be in touch with why you're disclosing mm-hmm. because a lot of times we will compulsively share because we can't sit with the discomfort of them not knowing, right? Because we're like, oh, well, this is just this thing that's hanging over our heads. And like, if they want, you know, I I need to find out right now is if if they find out I have OCD, that then they're either going to leave or stay. And so I need to know right away what their reaction is going to be. And that's really not a healthy place to share from. You want to share from a place of control where the reason that you are sharing is because you've decided that this person is worth getting to know better, that they have, they're worth you sharing that part of yourself and being in control of the disclosure and figuring out what is relevant to share right now. Because for a lot of us, kind of maybe the more traumatic or shocking parts of our mental health history might not be that relevant to who we are today. Right. You know, like maybe your worst episode was 10 years ago. Right. So, with a long-term partner, that period of your life might come up and should come up at some point, but it doesn't need to come up on that third date where you're just first mentioning that you've struggled with your mental health, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. You have to be in a place where you, and we do talk, you talk about this in the book about, which I loved. It's like, if you're going to be in a solid relationship, if you want to, it's that feeling of safety first and foremost, right? I mean, when I'm like, it makes a hundred percent sense to me when I read that, but I'm like, it's so simple yet profound. If you're not feeling safe, even with, within that, within a dating, let's say you're dating somebody, you've got like five or six dates and you're like, you're actually not feeling like there's a, a level of trust or safety. You're not going to share personal stuff about yourself like that. It wouldn't be also, wise. You're not, you have to protect yourself. And looking at the disclosure as not just like a test on whether or not they're going to accept you, but sort of like a test on who this person is, right? Because if they don't take that disclosure well, or you can tell that like, they don't like to talk about hard things, or they're not willing Mm -hmm. to like give the time and energy to ask like a single follow-up question, then maybe this isn't the person for you. Maybe they don't have the capacity to hold what you're going to need them to hold. Yes. Yeah. So we've had a community question, actually many community questions around this from people struggling in relationships when one person is not dealing well with their mental illness. And you asked a great question of your therapist, of the therapist, Annette, who you had worked with, right? Is it the responsibility of the person who is suffering to walk away from the relationship 
if they can see they're bringing their partner down with them. Can we talk about her answer and your thoughts around that? This is something that I I think is quite common. Of course it is. Right? Yeah. And I I think, you know, I really loved her answer, which was sort of like, that's a unilateral decision, right? Like, yes. And, and, you know, as someone who's been unilaterally left by her ex-fiance and and having to live with that and feeling such a loss of control that this person just made this decision without including me in it at all. I really gravitate towards this idea that like, we have to have hard conversations with each other. And so instead of saying, I'm not doing well, therefore I'm leaving you to protect you. It's saying, I'm not doing well. And I want to check in and see is that okay? Like, are you, is this fair for you to stay in this relationship when it is so clear that I'm not okay and that I'm having trouble becoming okay again and kind of giving them a bit of the power to be able to say, and not just the power, but an opening to be able Mm. to say, actually, you know, this has been really draining on me. It's been really hard for me to see you not get help when you clearly need help. And, and maybe I do need to take a step back. Or for them to say, the last thing I want is to not be here when you're struggling. Please let me be here for you while you're going through this. And that's a personal decision that your partner has to make. But I think opening the door to have that discussion, because I think a lot of people feel like, how could I possibly abandon someone during a hard time that makes me a bad person? But ultimately, we're not meant to be our partner's long time. There's different dynamics in partnerships. And sometimes you're going to have to step up and be more of a caretaker for your partner than other times. Mm-hmm. But you're allowed to say that that dynamic doesn't work for me long term. Yes. Um, and again, That's this so is well more said. towards like uh, mental health than I would say physical health. I think yes. a lot of times, a lot of people, um, with physical disabilities, their partner ends up having to do a lot of caretaking duties, but that's sort of, that's sort of the dynamic and that's something they know and is fine and, and is normal. But, um, with, with mental health caretaking, I think that it's really, you know, it's in all relationships, it's really valid to say, is this working for you? Yes. <laughs> and yes. letting somebody feel like they have the space to say that it's not. Absolutely. So, Dr. Annette Rodders and Allison's quote, I, I combine them because I just love this so much. And this is like when your partner, what happens when your partner won't get help? Okay, you're with your, and this I think is just, I mean, I've got, you know, best friends that have been with partners that just were not getting help that they needed, right? And she says, and you, if you're involved with someone who seems to be really troubled and they're not willing to get help, you can say, I'm getting more concerned. It's hard for me to be with someone who isn't willing to take the steps to take care of themselves. The person who's saying the other has a problem without seeing it acted upon is going to grow increasingly unhappy, which makes sense. It's not going to be resolved. And that lack of resolution might just wear down your relationship until there's nothing left to fight for. Right? I think this was so well said and so true. Because if you're with somebody that's not willing to get the help and you're watching this deterioration happen or just maybe just a standstill you're like what else can you do you just feel helpless yeah and and I think so much of what makes relationships work is willingness right so it's not like you can say to your partner snap out of your depression because that's not how depression works but you can say I think you need to maybe see your doctor 
or maybe see your psychiatrist or, you know, last time you went through a depressive episode, you mentioned that doing yoga really helped you feel better. How do you feel about trying yoga again? Mm -hmm. Um, And seeing them have a willingness to want to get better, to want to put in some work to get better. But if they don't have that, you know, we only have one life to live. And if you're someone who's, who's open and willing and giving as a partner and your, and your partner has a inability to, to do that back and a reluctance to do that back, you have to evaluate, you know, what kind of life you want to live. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, so you've got another community question. Someone in our community is with a partner who's threatening to kill themselves if the other person leaves them. And I know um, Annette, the therapist in your book, she gave this great advice. You don't want to be with someone who won't help themselves. So you are you are choosing to leave. And there is a difference between manipulation and self-preservation, right? That was a good point that you make in the book. There's a difference between, I think, um, being like being selfish and... Oh, and yes. I'm sorry. Self, selfish. Sorry. Yeah, there's a difference between being selfish and self-preserving. Um, yes. And... You know, unfortunately, the dynamic of somebody threatening to hurt themselves, if you leave, isn't healthy for either one of you. You know, there's this sense of like, oh, well, they'll be okay if I just stay, but they're obviously not okay. Um, And so I think, you know, you don't want to necessarily based on, obviously, if you're, if you feel unsafe, um, or there isn't any abuse happening, you absolutely just need to get yourself out of that situation if you're able to. But if you, if there is an abuse and, and there isn't a sense that you're in danger, I think that you can potentially try to help provide them with some support and resources before you leave. Um, you know, maybe they have some friends, some family, you can sort of call them up, say, Hey, it's looking like this relationship isn't working out, but you know, so-and-so is in a really bad place. And it, it would mean a lot to me if you could kind of check in on them. Um, or even like, would you mind come, I'm, I'm moving my stuff out, but would you mind coming and spending the night with them when I do that? Um, and for people who don't really have other people in their life, you know, providing them with, with resources, you know, some, some hotlines, some, um, uh, even, yeah. you know, a therapist, if, if you think that's something they're able to, to get access to. Uh, but at a certain point, it, it is not healthy for either one of you to stay in a dynamic just because they're threatening to harm themselves if you don't. No, definitely not. So there's there's a, a lot of information in your book about um, medication, right? Is it going, will it help or will it hurt? And you did describe just in the beginning and also in your book openly about how when you were four years old, I mean, you said, I don't know if I would have survived my childhood without liquid Prozac. But like, unfortunately, there is still a lot of stigmas around medication for those that are that have a mental illness. They don't want to take it because they're afraid of the side effects. So you did you do go through a lot of that, which I thought I didn't know a lot. Like I, I've, I've, I've definitely heard about what you um, medications that can cause weight gain. So people are afraid that, oh, if I take that medicine, I'm, I'm going to gain weight, right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk about a few of the stigmas around taking medication? And I know, and, you, and I love the, I loved what you talked about, how it's like, you're taking medicine, you have to change the perspective that this is good for you, right? And it's not all, it's not all the, always the case that you have to be on medicine. But in the case when you do, it's like, it's, a, it's something that's going to help you. It's not a, Right. You have to change the perspective to something that's like so positive. 
But I think like a lot of people think, oh, well, if I go on medication, I have to be on medication my entire life, or I just have to be on whatever medication I try first. But, you know, your medication journey is, is also not linear. Like you're yeah. ideally working with a psychiatrist who is able to hear feedback, who is asking, you know, like, are these side effects that you're willing to live with or not? Like, is this, is this prescription working? Should we try something else? Is this dosage working? Should we try something else? Like it is a, it is sort of a dance to find what, what works best. So I think sometimes people will maybe try something once and it doesn't go well. So like, you know, forget medication. And then in terms of like the stigma of it all, you know, like at a certain point, I, I loved um, the doctor. I, I interviewed Dr. Yashari, the psychiatrist, the phrase she uses, like, do you really want to white knuckle your way through life? You know, yeah. where I think a lot of people can live off medication, still have a job, still have a relationship, still have friends, still do stuff, but it's hard, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It is draining. It is exhausting. They often maybe don't find as much joy in those things as they would. Um, and so it's a question of like, what's the point of not helping yourself? Right. Um, and a lot of times you really just need the medication to get you to a base level so that you can then apply all the tools that you've learned either in therapy or through other resources. Because sometimes we're just below a level where we can enact change where we can logically know what we need to do and how we're supposed to think and why it's so important to sleep well and yada, da, 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 da. But like, if we can't access those tools, like we know those tools exist, but we can't mm -hmm. access them and have them work for us. Sometimes the medication can give us that bump that we need to implement those things into our lives. So it's not a quick fix, but it is a way to get you to a baseline where you can start to really help yourself and start for all these other things that you're doing to really have a payoff. Yes. So there's a, there's a chapter in your book called What Sex Got to Do With It, <laughs> right? I love it. So you talk about, you're like, oh, this was a chapter I was really like very afraid or what was the you just said this is like this one gave me anxiety to write because I'm sharing so much about myself and my sexual journey. But Allison, I have to say, I think this is so real for many of us, like growing up, right? It's like we don't know the first thing about sex. And then we're we're like bumbling through high school, college, whenever you start getting sexually active. And it's like, you know, you say for a long time, I thought my vagina was broken. Yes, broken, damaged, ruined beyond repair. Why? Because it didn't work the way I was promised by pop culture. And I'm like, yeah, like this is, we, we all just have this misconception or we're just looking to movies, just thinking it's going to come natural when it's like the, the exact opposite, right? And so you talk about going from a place of catastrophizing, thinking something was really wrong with you. And then once you started having sex, you were using sex as a tool rather than something you were desiring, which I think is so common. Like for so many of us, we've been through that period in our lives. And that was adult. And maybe even, you know, later on in dating life, you're still doing the same thing. But I just, like, can you just talk about that, please? About this? I just, I just thought this was like, I, I just thought I was just shaking my head going, yeah, we've all been there. A lot of us have. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely an area of my life that I, I had never talked about publicly before, probably the only area of my life I had never talked about publicly before. But, you know, it is so tied into my mental health. And, and you know, I think it took me a really long time to understand that a lot of why 
I wasn't having these experiences the way that I thought that I quote unquote should or would was tied up in my anxiety and my mental health. And that, you know, it was like unrealistic for me to think that like as an anxious person, I wouldn't carry that into the bedroom and that it couldn't mm-hmm. have, you know, physical effects on my body and my ability to connect and, and, um, enjoy sex physically in the way that I had been sort of promised by, by media and society. Um, and so for me, you know, it, it was really about like first acknowledging that, right? Like, because yes. I think we can feel, like I said, just like physically broken, like something is wrong with us, that we are missing out on this thing that everyone else is doing with no problems at all. <laughs> um, and so just sort of like owning up to that. And also like just this, this idea that like of all the things I've had to work on in my life, this area I work on the least because I just have had to kind of triage other things. Like I've just had yes. to like, yeah. I, I'd, I had to like get to a place where like, I didn't want to die before I could be like, how do I have a fulfilling orgasm? Like, it's just like, you know, when you're dealing with, with stuff, like sometimes sex can really kind of become the, the lowest priority. And then it's also the hardest thing to talk about out of all of these things in a lot of ways. And so really just giving some tools for both, how to not feel shame around it, how to have conversations with partners, how to have conversations with partners where they don't personalize the fact that maybe your body doesn't respond in the same way as their previous partners has or how they've been taught people should respond. Um, And making sure that instead of you feeling like, oh, you've got to fix yourself, just finding somebody who doesn't feel like you need to be fixed. Yes. And I think, and one of the things that I wrote down about this, this chapter was, which is so poignant is like you and your partner is about the individuality of couples and how every couple is different and what you, you deem to be important in a partner. Like for instance, with the example, one example was like, if you're dating somebody like, and he watches seven hours of football every Saturday, Sunday, like it's football Sunday. Woohoo. Like I would not want to be with somebody that did that every Sunday, but Hey, I, I could think of a lot of women or, or people that are fine with it. Like go ahead. It's not, it doesn't bother me, but it's just so individual. Right. Right. And so one of the quotes I wrote down was you and your partner need to be on the same page about what satisfies both of you without getting hung up on frequency or orgasm. Because one, one couple could be like, we're fine with once a week, one couple, once a month. I mean, who cares? You're not, you don't have to compare yourself to other people, which I think it's all too prevalent. So, yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of times couples have kind of different levels of, of desire, but it's, figuring out a way that you both feel fulfilled and also that it doesn't, you know, that one person's maybe lower frequency isn't seen as a rejection of the other person. Yes. Um, And so maybe finding something to fill in the gap, like um, still, you know, cuddling next to each other on the couch the entire night. So you're still touching, but maybe you're neither, you know, one of you isn't in the, in the right headspace for, you know, full-blown intercourse or, you know, there's so many um, shades of intimacy. And I think we have a culture that is very hyper-focused on just penetration as, as the be all end all and kind of expanding our idea of, you know, what is intimacy, sexual intimacy, sexual fulfillment, sexual connection, and um, kind of breaking down the barriers of, of it. It has to look one way. Definitely. So there's, there's a lot of tips on how to date productively in your book. And 
I really appreciated this, this, what you said about, you said dating multiple people at once. If you've got, if you do have anxiety, right. Um, takes the pressure off and makes the entire experience less high stakes because you're not just focused on one person. If you have, and so that, I thought that was, that was, that was really good. <laughs> you know, uh, Devin Simone suggested that a dating expert. And, and, you know, that's kind of a thing that's sort of somewhat foreign to me because I tend to, you know, yes. focus on one person. But the problem with that is then it's like all or nothing. Like, oh man, I'll either, I'll either have a, a partner or I won't. And it'll be this person or it won't. But for the early stages of dating, if you're an anxious dater, it can be really helpful to, even if you like someone, to still go on a date with someone else, you know, to sort of just like, allow yourself and remind yourself that there are a lot of different possibilities out there. Um, and it, and it makes it so this one thing moving forward or not, doesn't mean that you will have a romantic life or not. (laughs) Yes. So I, okay. One of my favorite things that I read and I laughed out loud and I talked to my my best friends about this was your three tiered system, your (laughs) patented three tiered system for how to decipher if you're settling or if you're with the right person. I thought this was so awesome, Allison. Because I was like, we were like, we went through the three things. I'm like, yeah, like if you wouldn't. So, because I think it's all too typical. And, you know, I mean, I was a dating coach and matchmaker in my past life before I started Real Love Ready. And, you know, of course, you're you're talking about you want to have shared values. You know, you want to be physically attracted, like whether you could be physically attracted to a lot of different people, right? But um, same, you know, maybe life goals, like these are really broad things that you want to look for in a partner. But I really appreciated your theory, your three tier system because it's like way more like cut and dry. Like, listen, these are so can you please tell us about your three tiered system? Yeah, I'm working on getting this patented. Um <laughs> I think you should. It's solid. It's solid. So basically the, the first tier is like uh, deals with sort of physical and sexual attraction, which is so different for everybody. And and for some people, you know, they, they're not attracted to people right away. They need to get to know them. But like, if you're at a stage of, should I continue dating this person? It's basically, are they above or below your bar? Like, are you physically attracted to them, sexually attracted to them? That's not based on any standard other than your own feeling towards this person. Um, And it's just sort of tapping into, do I feel this you know, this pull towards them. And again, this, that probably um, is much more for people, uh, you know, there are also people on the asexual, asexual scale who this, you know, this part wouldn't be helpful for, but if you're someone who's allosexual, this could be helpful. Um, And then the second tier is called the mall. And it's basically, if you were at the mall with your partner and you like, walking around, would you be like jazzed to show them off? Right. And again, this isn't just like about physical looks. This is just like, are you just like proud to be with this person? So you're at the mall yes. and like you bump into a coworker. Are you excited to like introduce your coworker to your partner? Like, do yes. you know that that will go well? Because like, you just like think they're the best. <laughs> yes. Or would you be like, oh God, oh no, there's my aunt. And it's it, run the other way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the third tier is family dinner. And family, I use um, loosely because it it can be you, you know your biological family, but it can um, uh, but it can also be just your found family. Um, and so, like whoever you consider to be the most important people in your life, could you see this person fitting in a family dinner with them? Like, yes. do you see that going well? Do you see like that that they would be able to basically 
be a part of your world and your life in a positive way. And so those are sort of like the three things I say to like, you know, kind of run through in your head when you're thinking about maybe making something official with someone or wondering if like, if you're quote unquote settling. Um, so I think kind of running through those different scenarios can be kind of enlightening. <laughs> yes. I, I just love that so much. And I, and, and then, you know, you said more importantly, most importantly, ask yourself the key question, like, can you, do you respect this person? I mean, really, like, do you have like a, a lot of respect? Because if you don't really respect them, well, then, well, that's pretty important too. But, but also the dinner and the mall and, and uh, attraction. So I like, I like all three. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just perfect. So we are almost out of time, but I know that um, you are you are in a happy relationship with John, right? Yes. And, you, 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 and I love the fact that oh my gosh, I laughed and I loved it so much when he interviewed you for your book, and I that was so good. He's got a really good sense of humor too. He does. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of play in our relationship, which is really important to both of us. I think. Yeah, and I mean, and now it's like so. Can you just? I know you you got a public relationship in some ways, but how how do you feel different about the relationship you have now with John compared to you know you, you share a lot of stories about dating with different men in your book. I love all the stories, but how do you feel um, you know that you're that it's different, and because of all the self love that you've given yourself, right? That you can bring that into your your this relationship now. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the reasons it's really different is just because I'm different because, yeah. um, you know, my differentiation is, is stronger. Like I, I care about this person, but my, my life and my emotions are not dependent on this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I also think that I really was able, you know, having met him in my thirties, having met him after a broken engagement, having met him having dated as much as I did, I sort of had a very clear idea of what was actually important to me and what I thought should be important to me, but really wasn't. Um, And so for me, that was like finding someone who I genuinely enjoy. (laughs) Like, I think that the ability to just like want to hang out with your partner is very important because that's who you spend most of your time with. Um, And so he's someone who always makes me laugh he makes me feel respected. Um, I feel like he allows me to be all different versions of me, but also sees a lot of like what I, you know, what I can do. Um, he's like my, my cheerleader and I try to be the same for him. And so, you know, a lot of it is, is, is timing. I think a lot of times meeting someone once you've figured out a lot of your own stuff makes the relationship a lot easier versus meeting someone when you're younger and you both haven't done that yet. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I don't know if our relationship would be as good and, you know, fulfilling if we'd met at 24. I don't think it would have. I don't even necessarily know we would have worked out um, because I think we both had a lot of things to work through. But luckily, we've both done that work and then we're able to kind of come together. And and now this relationship is sort of the easy part. (laughs) Yes. That and and you just that's that's just beautiful. Well, so beautifully said, and I'm so happy for both of you and your dogs. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And you're doing such tremendous work in the world, and you're just such a light. So, thank you, thank you for coming on our show, Allison, and thank you for writing your book and doing everything you're doing. Oh, Um, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed these questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you. We'll see you on IG. Perfect. Okay, bye. I'll see you soon. Bye. (laughs) Please visit realloveready.com to become a member of our community. Submit your relationship questions for our podcast experts 
at reallovereadypodcast at gmail.com. We read everything you send. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Your feedback helps us get you the relationship advice and guidance you need. The Real Love Ready podcast is recorded and edited by Maya Anstey. Transcriptions by otter.ai and edited by Maya Anstey. We at Real Love Ready acknowledge and express gratitude for the Coast Salish people, the stewards of the land on which we work and play, and encourage everyone listening to take a moment to acknowledge and express gratitude for those that have stewarded and continue to steward the land that you live on as well.